But we're going to read in chapter 39 of a circumstance, in fact a set of circumstances, um, that were unscripted uh, in the life of Joseph, insofar as there were things he didn't see coming. Uh, in a nutshell, Genesis chapter 39 uh, is a rags to riches, back to rags kind of story. At the beginning of the chapter, Joseph's a slave in a foreign uh, culture. Then God prospers him and he rises to the top of the house of Potiphar. Uh, the life uh, that he was living was as good as a slave could be expected to be. Uh, but Potiphar's wife uh, tried to seduce him. Uh, and when he refused her demands, she falsely accused him. And he ends up at the end of the chapter in a prison dungeon, seemingly worse off than when the chapter started. Uh, now, before we read this scriptural account, uh, let me share with you how Joseph's unscripted circumstances, unforeseen circumstances, are similar to the, the process for making my favorite donuts. I love donuts. And there's a donut that I've learned to love uh, when I lived in Canada and North America called Krispy Creams. Krispy Creams. Oh, man, they're to die for. Now, years ago, there was only one kind of donut. Uh, and up north, we used to call them gravy, gravy rings. Do you remember that? Gra gravy rings? Anyone remember that? Yeah. Uh, and it was, it was tough and it was bulky. And, but then, of course, through the years, all sorts of donut shops have, have come up and all sorts of donuts. And Krispy Creams are the... The creme de la creme, really. They're, they're beautiful. You know, you know the way a McDonald's meal never satisfies you uh, when you've had it? Well, Krispy Kremes are the same. One donut's not enough. You need to have more. And I discovered, as I was preparing this during the week, that there's a Krispy Kreme donut shop, of all places, in Blanchardstown. The only one in Ireland. It was opened in September last year. And I uh, began thinking I need to make a special visit down to Blanchardstown. I have a free pass, given the age that I am, for the bus and the train. So I can take the train down there and get the bus and, and go to Krispy Kreme. And they have a drive-through even. In fact, they had to shut the drive-through down when it first opened. I was reading some news reports because the long queues of traffic was annoying the neighbours. But uh, Krispy Kreme donuts. Well, you know, the process for making Krispy Kreme donuts is quite remarkable. Uh, first, the little balls of special dough are shot through with a hole. And then the flat pastry donuts are forced to spend time in the proof box, it's called, that allows the flat dough to rise. And then they're dropped into boiling oil to be cooked thoroughly. In fact, in that store, you can see them being cooked. You can watch uh, as you're queuing up to get them. Dropped into boiling, boiling oil to be cooked thoroughly, after which they make their way to the end of the production line where they pass through a cascading wall of icing, hot icing. Um, you can imagine what suffering and pain these poor little fellows have to go through only to be consumed by a ravenous beast like me. Um, and yet, it's the trials that these lumps of dough have to endure that make them into tasty Krispy Kreme donuts beloved by millions, millions of people. Well, in Genesis 39, Joseph is going through an experience, uh, a Krispy Kreme-like experience, if you like, of trials. He's dropped into a hole uh, sold by his brothers into slavery. He's going to have to deal with the incessant heat of a woman's temptation. And he's going to experience the cascading waterfall of false accusation and prison. And these, to, to anyone's uh, estimation, are severe trials for anyone. And yet these are the very things that will develop Joseph uh, and mature him more and more into a, the godly man that, that he became. And just as the donuts trials produce a product of great delight, 
uh, at least to me, the trials that God allows in, in our own lives bring about in us what delights him, a maturing of our character. And Joseph's unscripted life reminds me time and time again that in the midst of, of our trials and the ups and downs of life, God's invisible providential hand of grace and sovereignty is always present with us. So let's read in chapter 39, if you have it open, and if you don't have a Bible with you or, or an electronic version, just, just listen, and I'll read you the story. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, uh, an Egyptian, was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, uh, brought him from the Ishmaelites, or bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. And when his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes, and he became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had, with Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. Now Joseph was well built and handsome, and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you're his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. But one day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside and she caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. And when she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, the Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of, uh, of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. And when he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. And she kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story, that the Hebrew slave you brought to us came to me to make sport of me, but as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. And when his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, uh, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him, and he showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. And the warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. And we say amen to the reading of God's, God's word. When we last uh, really saw our hero, uh, Joseph, if you want to call him that, he had been betrayed by his, his brothers uh, and he'd been sold to uh, desert traders who took him to Egypt and then they resold him to this, this man uh, named Potiphar, head of Pharaoh's security. He was kind of a sort of chief of police sort of guy. And so Joseph's far from home. He's a slave in Egypt. His brothers have abandoned him. His father thinks he's dead. And as Genesis 39 opens, his future looks very bleak. 
But there's one fact alone that gives us hope that his story will turn out well. And after reading that he's now a slave in Potiphar's house, the text adds one all-important detail in verse 2. It says, the Lord was with Joseph. Amen. And that makes all the difference. You know, the divine name Lord or Yahweh appears eight times, eight times in this chapter alone. But only one other time in the remaining 11 chapters of Joseph's story in Genesis that causes us to understand that, that, the, that at the most uncertain time of his life, when he could see nothing of God, the covenant God of Israel was nevertheless at work behind the scenes to effect his covenant promises through Joseph. And in the same way, you know, you and I must understand that as we journey with Jesus through this life, he will be with us too. And even though the circumstances of life may not seem to go our way all the time, God is always in control. He will orchestrate his purposes behind the scenes. And as we lean on him, he will be faithful to us. In the familiar words of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, it reminds us that while we all face temptations in all sorts of ways, God will always provide a way of escape if we're willing to take it. However, back in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, after the failure to resist temptation in the garden, God warned Adam and Eve's firstborn son, Cain, who was being tempted to sin against his brother because of jealousy. And God said, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, listen, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And there's no better illustration of this truth than the example of Joseph here in Genesis chapter 39. It was not a coincidence that Joseph ended up in Potiphar's home Unbeknownst to Joseph, God had sent him to Potiphar's house to prepare him for the important task which would eventually lay ahead. That of him eventually serving as the second highest official in the whole land of Egypt. But for that to happen, Joseph, uh, Joseph had to learn the language and the culture and the business and the politics even of Egypt. In verse 3, something profound takes place. Moses, the, the author of the first five books of the Bible, but Moses writes here in verse 3, And when his master saw that the Lord was with him, that is with Joseph, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, you know, we have to be careful not to read over that too quickly. God's blessing on Joseph was not ordinary success. It was extraordinary. It was unexpected. Because even Potiphar had to admit that the Lord was with Joseph and was causing him to do so well. Imagine how strong Joseph's testimony had to be for Potiphar to recognize and admire Joseph's character and to attribute it to God rather than to Joseph himself. Potiphar had many slaves. He was a busy man, but he was a pagan. He was an unbeliever. But Joseph's life was so uncommon, so supernatural, that Potiphar this pagan had to sit up and take notice. Now, he was no dummy. And so he puts Joseph in complete charge of his large and, and, and wealthy estate. And then in verses 4 and 5, notice what happens when jo Joseph takes over. What does it say there in verses 4 and 5? It says, 
Joseph found favour in his eyes, became his attendant, and Potiphar put him in charge of the household, and he entrusted him to care for everything he owned. And from this time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned. The Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything that Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. What an amazing thing. Five times in four verses, verses through to five, Moses mentions how God's favor and God's blessing was on Joseph. And there are two things that we ought to take note of from that. First of all, and uh, we need to remember this, lost people, unbelievers, are not stupid. They may be lost in their sin, but even in their spiritual confusion, they can discern the hand of God at work in a believer's life. And sometimes we act like lost people have no perception at all. But while it's true that they don't understand maybe our doctrines or our teachings, you know, they don't know what it means to be premillennial or postmillennial. And to be honest, some of us don't even know that either. They don't know what the Trinity is. We have trouble with that as well. But while lost people may not understand the finer points of what we say we believe, lost people are not stupid. They can spot a phony. They can spot a hypocrite anywhere. A mile away. But they can also see sincerity. And I believe God wants you and me, just like Joseph, to live such a life that it will attract attention and the recognition of those around us as we walk in the favor and the blessing of God. He longs, God longs for your boss. He longs for your co-workers, your, your teachers, your neighbors, your lost family members to see the presence of God in you each and every day. A man, a woman, or a young person who has the favor and blessing of God resting on them will have to be acknowledged by the world. I wonder, are you willing to be or to become that type of person? Potiphar may have followed a pagan religion, but he understood that Joseph was different and he respected him for it. And the second thing I think that this uh, little passage teaches us is that there's no contradiction, this is important, there's no contradiction between God's blessing and our trials and temptations. There's no contradiction. In fact, we're most likely to be tempted when things are going well because it's often when we're enjoying God's blessings and his favor that we become complacent and we take those blessings for granted and that's exactly when Satan wants to tempt us or to try us. Now, the Bible doesn't often give Many physical descriptions of people. But at the end of verse 6 we read that Joseph was well built and handsome. I wonder could I say that about anybody here this morning. Well built and handsome. He's a combination of Brad Pitt and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, he's got six pack abs, a chiseled chest, guns of granite. In other words he's a stud. And this might ordinarily be a blessing, but as it often happens, today's blessings and victories can sometimes lead to tomorrow's trials and temptations. And it's exactly at this point when Joseph seems to be sitting on top of the world that a new character enters a story. Now, we don't know her name, only that she's the wife of Potiphar. But the situation is described for us in verse 7 with unashamed, you know, directness. Just like chapter 38 was unashamed in telling us the story of Judah and Tamar and all that. It says, after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, here, 
come to bed with me. The Hebrew has a wonderful way of expressing some things, you know. And literally translated, it, it means that she lifted up her eyes. You know, she gave him the glad eye, so to speak. Or as the Living Bible translates it or paraphrases it, she made eyes at him. You know, I came across a new word in relation to this. It's the word flirtationship. We've often heard about people being flirts and flirting, but flirtationship. It means more than a friendship, but less than a relationship. And notice that it was after God had blessed him in Potiphar's house and his appearance in the area of his responsibility, which was great, he was confronted with this temptation. And temptation often comes, doesn't it, when we least expect it. Joseph is exactly where God wants him to be. He's simply minding his own business. So how then does he get into such a situation like we read? Now the answer really is, is, is crucial for us to understand because the truth is there's no contradiction between God's blessings and our trials and temptations. We often think that there's a contradiction, believing that if we do what's right, then we'll never be tempted. But the opposite is true. We're much more vulnerable to be tempted when things are going well for us. And if we're never tested when things are going well, we have a, ten we have a tendency to become arrogant and blasé and big-headed. But the onset of temptation is often where we are confronted with who we really are. And it can serve to humble us. C.S. Lewis once observed that no man knows how bad he is until he has tried to be good. It's not true. And it's precisely because temptation is hard to resist that we learn how, how, how bad we really are and how much we stand in need of, of God's grace every moment of every day. Temptation is not new in any sense, of course. It's the same for us as it was for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and as it was for Jesus himself in the wilderness. From the very beginning, the battle has raged for the souls of men and women and young people, a battle that touches all of us sooner or later. Temptation has been defined as the inner urge to do something that hits us in the place of our own personal weakness. Let me say that again. Temptation is the inner urge to do something that hits us in the place of our own personal weakness. I find that helpful because it, it emphasizes, listen, it emphasizes that temptation ultimately comes from within us. While the stimulus may start on the outside, the urge to do wrong always comes from the inside. And that's important to realize because we all tend to blame somebody else or something else when we yield to temptation and we, we fall into sin. But it's not the devil that made us do it. Nor is it some titillating scene on TV or, or, or on a magazine or some irritating person or some questionable relationship. We can't blame our parents or our grandparents. We can't blame our DNA. Those things may be factors in the equation, but it's the inner urge that belongs to us that we have to take responsibility for. We can't blame it on other people or circumstances. No one makes us sin. We can do it all on our own. Did you realize that? Now in verses 8 through 9 we read how Joseph used three lines of defense to try and ward off this temptation. He said it was, number one, it was the, the abuse of trust. Number two, it was an offense against her husband. And number three, it was a sin against God. 
This is what it means to be above reproach. Joseph is concerned about his integrity, the institution of marriage, and his fellowship with God. And an important truth is being revealed to us here. Our sin is never private. No matter how much you think it might be, it is never, ever private. Every time we sin, we do something we shouldn't do. We sin against God, who is omniscient, who knows all things, who sees all things. And these days we, you know, we like to rename sin. Some people like to rename sin to make it sound less sinful. The last few years we've been assaulted by gay rights and abortion lobbies in an attempt to redefine sin. Or maybe it's more accurate to call it an attempt to undefine sin. And as Christians today, we're under great pressure to compromise our convictions, or if not to compromise, at least to shut up and be quiet. That's what the world tells us when we try to speak out against sin. You don't need me to remind you that in May 2015, and then in May 2018, successive referendums here in Ireland changed the constitution of the Irish Republic to allow for both gay marriage and abortion rights. How should we respond? Listen, we need to remember that there's a higher legislative court to which we're all called to give an account that's not subject to any referendums. Amen. That court is never divided. It's never uncertain. It's never wrong. And while we show proper respect to earthly courts, even when we disagree, we must unwaveringly reaffirm our conviction that there's a supreme judge who cannot be swayed by public opinion and whose rulings can never be overturned. We need to stand up with both bold courage and, and yet winsome compassion, not changing our convictions about right and wrong, but declaring as the psalmist did in Psalm 119, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Nobody's going to change it. God's not going to change it. And so in times like these, we need an infusion, if you like, of the, of the Joseph spirit so that we'll be able to, to do what he did, calling Bible things by Bible names. Listen, adultery is still sin because God says it is. And by re renaming it an affair or a fling or a one-night stand doesn't change its character any more than calling rat poison food uh, turns it into something that's palatable and good for you. Now, if you haven't realized it before now, temptation will always be there in one form or another. It never takes a day off. In fact, temptation is like a telemarketer. It comes to us when it's least convenient. It comes back again and again. It keeps pushing even after you say no, and it makes what it's selling sound great, but there's always a catch. The temptation of Joseph parallels really the test of Adam and Eve in the garden. They had free use of everything in the garden, save the, the fruit of one tree. And Joseph had access to anything of Potiphar's except his wife. But while the forbidden fruit just hung there, tempting Adam and Eve, Potiphar's wife actively pursued Joseph, it says, day after day. And he showed great resolve. But you know, Potiphar's wife wasn't taking no for an answer, apparently. And she likely had all kinds of one-liners in her repertoire, you know, Potiphar's gone for the day. No one will ever know. Just this once. 
Potiphar hasn't been a very good husband. I deserve some happiness, don't I? Just come close. Come close and hold me. Won't go any further. We won't be hurting anyone. Oh, I'm sure she had all those one-liners. She was a woman who was unaccustomed to hearing the word no. It's not going to happen. And despite his flat refusal, she continued to seduce him day after day until, until finally she made her move. And she grabbed him, pulled him down with her. And now it's a moment of truth, the moment for truth to arise. In his humanity, maybe for a split second, I can imagine Joseph may have paused to consider his alternatives. Remember, Joseph, we said it before, came from a dysfunctional family, didn't he? He was hated, betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery. His brothers Reuben and Judah were immoral. He was a young man with his hormones in full force. He was away from home in an Egyptian culture that was filled with sexual immorality. He could have been tempted to submit to her and say, well, you know, she made me do it. Or to go along with, with it because no one might ever find out. Or he could say, well... Why don't we sit down and talk about it like mature adults? And when she said, why don't you stay and lie with me? He said, I'd, I'd love to, but I've got to run. <laughs> and that's exactly what he did. Leaving her holding his coat while he ran the other way. You see, Joseph opted for being naked rather than being naughty. And so he took off like, you know, the road runner in the, in the cartoons. He just went and streaked away. You see, Joseph knew that he belonged to God, first and foremost. And when a person knows that they belong to God, it should help us to make the decisions that we come across in life that are sometimes hard. It should make them a little bit easier. Joseph had long since made up his mind who he was, and more importantly, whose he was. And so he was spiritually prepared when Satan came against him in this way and tried to destroy his testimony. And listen, if you're not in regular relationship with God, praying, reading his word, worshipping him. When temptation hits as it will, it'll be too late to pray about it when Potiphar's wife is playing kissy-kissy in your face. If you know and profess to belong to God, when temptation comes, you've got to move fast. There's a time to talk and there's a time to stop talking. There's a time to, to stay and there's a time to go. There's a time to walk, a time to run away. Or as you know, Kenny Rogers famously sang, you know the song, you've got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, and know when to run. And although these principles for dealing with strong temptation apply to anyone and, and to every temptation, and before I, I, I finish by saying a few things about the unfairness of what happened next to Joseph, I want to say a few things to every man here this morning, especially young men who are here this morning, because sexual sin is a very specific tactic of the devil that he uses against men. Now, there's a men's breakfast coming up that you need to book off. Um, I think it's is it the last Saturday in the, in, in, in the month, something like that, but uh, we'll get the date for you. You need to be in fellowship with other men. Don't neglect that. But we live in a, a culture today that's obsessed with sex. And while sexual immorality is nothing new, you know, it used to be hidden and, and generally viewed as wrong by our culture, but now it's blatant and shrugged off as no big deal. 
I recently read that there's 19.5 million unique visitors per month to the top five paying for porn websites. And that jumps up to 98.5 million unique visitors per month to the top five free porn websites. It used to be that to view pornography, you had to take a lot of trouble and risk the embarrassment of being seen to go into a pornographic bookstore. But now anyone with a, a web connection can view it in the privacy of their own home. And while you hear of statistics like that, you begin to wonder, is it possible to be morally pure in our polluted world? And thankfully, the story of Joseph here in Genesis 39 and in Psalm 119 says, yes, yes, it is. And if Joseph, a young man reared in a society as morally corrupt uh, as ours, who had no Bible, he had no church, not much parenting training, uh, he was alone in a foreign culture, if he could resist the repeated direct propositions of his master's wife, then anyone, any man can be morally pure in a polluted world. There's no excuse. But it's not going to happen by accident because you don't win wars without knowing your weak areas, knowing your enemy's tactics, and being self-controlled and willing to pay the price. Sexual temptation, listen, it's never just physical. There's always an emotional component which is usually misplaced. God designed marriage and sex within marriage to meet our needs. So if we try to meet our needs through sex outside of marriage, whether it's pornography or other sexual relationships, we may have immediate pleasure, but it will invariably be followed by long-term guilt and pain and we'll end up enslaved to sin. So if you're married... If you're a married man here this morning, don't let emotional drift set in. You can prevent temptation by cultivating and maintaining a close relationship with your spouse. Make sure you do that. If you're single, pray for a spouse. Talked about this before. And use what may be lonely times for yourself to deepen your intimacy with God while maintaining your commitment to moral purity. Joseph's resistance wasn't accidental. I believe he had made a previous commitment to moral purity and integrity in all of life. He knew that obedience and purity give glory to God in a way that disobedience and immorality can't. He was a man of integrity in all areas of his life. He could be trusted with all of Potiphar's uh, business, but if he'd been cheating in business matters, it would have been easier to cheat on Potiphar's wife. But... He was full of integrity across every area of his life. Listen, you've got to decide up, up front that you want to be a morally pure man or woman of God. And it begins by confronting lustful, wandering thoughts. Pastor Chuck Swindle said it best. Adultery occurs in the head long before it occurs in the bed. No one ever commits sexual sin who didn't first entertain it in his mind. Because there's no such thing as a godly man going from moral purity and a close walk with Christ to sexual sin in a sudden blowout. It's always a slow fade towards it. And it always begins with entertaining, lustful, wandering thoughts. And it's easy to rationalize sin because in the same circumstances with our sinful, depraved hearts, we can construct arguments either in favor of obedience to God or against it. If Joseph had simply focused on his own needs, 
He could have built a case for yielding to Potiphar's wife. But Joseph lived in an awareness of God's presence and a realization of his own responsibilities. All sin is done in God's sight and is primarily against him. So Joseph didn't want to trade God's blessing for the passing pleasure of sin. Potiphar's wife was humiliated by Joseph's refusal and her humiliation quickly turned to rage. As the poet wrote, heaven has no rage like love to hatred turned, nor hell a fury like a woman scorned. And so she falsely accused Joseph and he spent the next few years in prison. And the thread which ties this narrative together is the theme really of suffering. Few would disagree with the statement that God was with Joseph in Potiphar's penthouse, so to speak. But many would question how God could be with Joseph in the prison. All would agree that Joseph's prosperity in Potiphar's house came from God due to his faithfulness as a hard-working servant. But how many would say with as much conviction that Joseph's purity with regard to Potiphar's wife rightly resulted in him suffering in prison? See, many Christians today seem to think that obedience should always bring success and prosperity. You hear that preached across the, the television airwaves. And yet Joseph does right, but he becomes a slave. And then ends up spending years in an Egyptian prison. The more Joseph obeyed God, it seemed the worse life got for him. Yet our story concludes with Moses stating yet again in verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph while he was in prison just as he had been with him in Potiphar's house. And this time Joseph found favor again in the sight of the prison warden, just as he had with Potiphar. And he soon became the chief administrator of the entire prison. Amazing. It was the same area of work. Joseph was an administrator. But the level of training was now greater because God was preparing Joseph for the day when he would be administering the entire land of Egypt. And so the conclusion is undeniable. God is present as much with his saints to bless them when they're suffering as when they're peacefully prospering. And more than this, we can actually prosper in as, uh, as much in times of, of trial and suffering as we do in times of affluence and ease. Listen, God doesn't grow glasshouse Christians. He causes our roots to go deep into the soil of adversity in order that we might better know him and serve him. And we know what this is like because it's just when life is going well that something happens to try and take away our peace. All of a sudden we lose our job, we're let go. Our relationship crumbles. Our health takes a turn for the worse. Pressures in the workplace or home threaten to overwhelm us. Our reputation maybe is tarnished by unholy perceptions or untruths and innuendo about us. And in these times, it's easy to despair, it's easy to withdraw, to get depressed, and to sing over and over again, why me, Lord, what did I ever do? In these times, we're tempted to turn away from God, but Joseph didn't. Instead, he continues to serve faithfully where he is, whether it's in the palace or in the prison. His particular temptation was with regard to sexual sin, but this message is also applicable to any temptation that we might be confronted with, the temptation to get even. The temptation to cheat in some way. The temptation to manipulate a situation. The temptation to tarnish someone's character with our words. The temptation to adopt the world's philosophy rather than the Lord's. 
and even applies to the greatest temptation of all, the temptation to turn away from or ignore God and his gift of salvation and everlasting life. Of all the things Satan wants to tempt you to do, that's number one on the list. If Satan can turn you away from Christ through difficult circumstances, he'll do it. If he can turn you away from your devotion to God by giving you lots of stuff to keep you distracted and oblivious to your need of salvation, he'll do it. If he can fill your head with foolish fantasy thinking, he'll do it. If he can make you feel religious, even self-righteous, so you don't turn to Christ in humility, he'll do it. So Joseph found himself in a pit, then in a palace, and then in a prison. And he must have endured much pain and sorrow and heartache in his all too young life. But through it all, Joseph kept something very precious. He maintained a firm grip on his character. Do you know what character is? Character is what you are and what you do when nobody else is looking. Joseph was away from home. No one back home would have known if he decided to live like an Egyptian and given into the ways and morals of that pagan culture. But through all the trouble he faced and through all the temptations that came his way, Joseph kept a tight grip on his integrity before God. And when he came out of the pit and later he was to come out of the prison, Joseph came through it all with his character intact. We'll see that again next week. You know, an old Christian was once asked by a young Christian, when will I stop being bothered by sin and temptation? And the old Christian replied, I don't know, son, except to say that I wouldn't trust myself until I was dead three days. (laughs) The battle for moral purity in a polluted world is a lifelong war. But it's winnable if if you'll be aware of the situations where you're vulnerable and you'll be on your guard. And if you're aware of how temptation works, and if you make a commitment to purity and develop a strategy before temptation comes, but more than anything, if you're willing to pay the price for being a faithful disciple and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back and sing our closing song. Listen, if you're here this morning, and you're someone who's been maybe sitting on the fence regarding your relationship with God, If you're here this morning and and, and you're someone who has done church, but you've never really received Christ as your personal saviour, his redeeming grace is available to you this morning, uh, as Jimmy reminded us at the table. Others of you here this morning may, may feel a little bit defiled or ensnared by one sin or another. It may not be sexual sin, it may be something else other temptations that you realize you've been susceptible to in word, in thought, in deed. Well, Christ can forgive and give you victory as well this morning. Amen. If you turn to him in confession and repentance, there is no one beyond the grip of God's grace. There is no sin beyond the power of God's forgiveness. There is no marriage beyond the tender mending of God's mercy. And there's no broken heart that his wounds can't heal. To every sinner who comes to him, he says what he said to the woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. So this morning, brothers and sisters, let's commit ourselves to be men and women who are people of integrity in all our ways, pure in thought, 
word and deed and recognizing that we can only be so by the grace of God alone. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.